Glad you all made it here this morning, beloved, and I know the reason for that is because you have a brand new sign out there that we could see, and I don't know if you guys noticed that. Much thanks to uh, Dean, uh, Brother Dean, put that, uh, put that together, and really, um, it, it was just super great. It, it, it looks good. You can see, and we even have a service time on there at 1030, and, and our name is clearly a church which is awesome because people know that that's what we are gathering here to be, a church, a church of the living God. And it's important for our community to know that, that they can come here and they can hear Christ and his gospel proclaimed. So um, this Sunday, uh, we're turning our attention back to the Gospel of John in John chapter 14, back to a conversation uh, that began at the end of chapter 13, after Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be departing from them. He had told them throughout his ministry uh, that he's going to the cross, and even here in John 13, he's going to the cross to prepare a place for them in heaven. He had been telling them he's going to satisfy justice He's going to purchase the forgiveness of their sin. He's going to fulfill all righteousness on their behalf. And he is going to endure the wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God in the place of sinners. And what is so striking about this passage in, in John, to me at least, is that in this final hour of Jesus, just the, he's just about to go to the cross, this final hour, his greatest concern is not that these disciples would minister to him, but that he would reach out and strengthen them in their faith. He aimed to minister hope and encouragement to his disciples who were perplexed and anxious about his departure. Again and again, our Lord ministers truth to them in their distress, that their hearts would really find their rest in him. His great concern was for the assurance of their faith, and what we've really been seeing in this passage of John's gospel is we've been seeing, I hope you've been seeing, a gentle, a caring, a patient, a loving Savior who cares for his disciples, who cares for us in our greatest times of need. He reminds them that he's always going to be with them. He's always going to carry on with them. And I pray that as we go through the remainder of this chapter 14, verses 22 to 31, I pray that you would be encouraged by that, beloved, that the same promises and the same care and the same strength that he seeks to give to his disciples now, you'll realize that it is the same word given to us that we might be strengthened to, to carry on. And so ask you to open with me to John 14, uh, verse 22. We've already seen Jesus respond to Peter, Thomas, and Philip, and here now we see his response in verse 22 to a concern of Judas, not Iscariot. John 14, verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is enduring, it is inerrant, it is everlasting, it is the rock upon which our hope is found. We thank you that your word became incarnate, that Christ took on flesh in order to take our sins and pay the price for our redemption. We thank you, Lord Jesus, how you ministered to your disciples in their greatest time of need, even as you were going to the cross to bear the weight of the world's sin, yet you cared for them deeply. We ask, O God, that you would encourage and strengthen our hearts and souls this morning as well. We know, Father, that this place in this world is full of trials and tribulations and anxieties, We know, Father, that each of us struggle through life with various difficulties that you have laid before us in your providence, but we know as your children that you have not abandoned us to face those things on our own, but you have given us of your spirit to strengthen us, to equip us, and to move us on in faithfulness. And so we pray that as we look at the encouragement of our Lord Jesus to these disciples in their time of distress, that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to our hearts, and that you would remind us that the same love that he shows for them, the same comfort and care, is the same comfort and care and love that he has for each of us. And so we pray that you would bless us and bless your word. May it minister to us in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. So, just to go back to uh, the end of last week a little bit, I think it's important in order to help us understand a bit of the context of Judas's question, which will help us understand Jesus's answer a bit more, okay? You'll remember at the conclusion of Jesus's response to Philip, Jesus told the disciples of his resurrection to come in verses 18 to 20. He told them, he said, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But Jesus said, you will see me. His resurrection, then he goes on to say, is going to be the basis of your new life. He says, because I live, when they see him resurrected, he says, you will live. And he says, in that day, when they see the resurrected Lord, and and no doubt, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on them at Pentecost. But specifically, in that day, Jesus says, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In that day, in that day, their fears and their anxieties will be uh, assailed by the knowledge that all that Jesus spoke about in the Gospel and in the Gospel of John, in all the Gospels, All that Jesus said to the disciples, and specifically in verses 7 to 11 with his relationship to the Father and his relationship to them, they would realize that all of it is is true. In that day when they beheld the risen Lord, they would realize with a fresh understanding that their relationship to God now is different through Christ. That, that they belong to him in a, in a unique and a special way. They are related to Christ. But they also are gained in that day that new resurrection life. 
uh, the result of which is that they will love him and keep his word, and they will be loved by the Father and loved by the Son. This is what Jesus says in verse 21. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. Now, in those verses, Jesus is not saying that they will, that they will, in a sense, the Father and the Son will respond with love to them because of their obedience, as if God's love were conditioned on their obedience. John even says in 1 John 4.10, not that we loved him, but he loved us first. And Paul says in Romans 5.10, he reconciled us to himself while we were sinners. And so Jesus isn't saying that the more you love me and the more you keep my word, then therefore the Father will love you as if it's some kind of works, righteousness, or, or relationship to God. Jesus is really simply saying that all who love him will be satisfied and happy, not because God begins to love them, but because they have a testimony of the Father and the Son's love to them. So in other words, they, they are loving God and they're serving him and responding, and it doesn't earn God's favor, but God gives them a special testimony of the Father and the Son that, that they are loved by God and they belong to him. That's important for us to keep that in mind, right? That's to say, the more they demonstrate their love for Jesus, this is a principle of the Christian life, the more you demonstrate your love for Jesus and you progress in day-to-day -day faith through the knowledge of Christ and you walk according to his word, the more deeply you will know his love for you. Not the more deeply his love grows for you, but the closer he will bring you to know him and his love. And this is what Jesus says at the end of verse 21. This is why he says, he says, um, you will be loved by my father and I will love him. And what does he say? And manifest myself to him. Okay? I will, I will manifest myself to him. The closer you walk in love and obedience to the Lord, the closer that you will know Jesus and the Father's love for you. And Jesus says, I will, I will manifest myself to him. Calvin put it like this. The fruit of piety is progress in the knowledge of Christ, and a more abundant knowledge of Christ is here represented as an extraordinary reward of our love to Christ, and it is an invaluable treasure. Walk closer, the Lord says, and I will manifest myself more to you. And the more you know me, the more glorious you will see is my love for you. But the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Judas not Iscariot, rather, misunderstands. And Judas, not Iscariot, says to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. So what is Judas thinking about here? He's wondering, how could it be that the Messiah would only be made known to them and not to the world? He's thinking like Malachi 4.2, Jesus is predicted, he's called the son of righteousness, S-U-N, the son of righteousness, the, the glory of righteousness will come and will shine upon the earth and enlighten and manifest himself entirely to the world. Or the, ranches, or the righteous branch of Isaiah 11. Or, or the son of man of Daniel 7. Surely the Messiah would come and he would manifest himself and all the world would receive him and know and glory in his name and, and, and his light will shine and enlighten everyone. And so Judas hears these distinctions between what the world will perceive 
and be given and what the disciples will enjoy. And in his mind, he cannot square this distinction with his belief that the kingdom must arrive in this undeniable and irresistible splendor. That day is coming when Jesus will come and all the world will see him and know him. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That day is coming when Christ returns. And it's a day, beloved, we should long for and desire when all of sin, which is now vanquished and dealt with, when it will finally be put into the ground and judged. That manifestation is coming. But here instead of Jesus explaining that to Judas, instead he brings their attention once again to building and strengthening their faith for the life that is to come. He doesn't want them to just have their heads in the sky and, and constantly thinking. And you know how sometimes people will predict the end of the world. Have you ever you've read about these people, the coming of Jesus? And then everyone will get riled up, and then they'll sell all of their goods, and they'll, they'll give everything away. I think this happened to, uh, 15 years ago, Harold Camping or something, and, and they'll sell everything and they'll, they'll say Jesus is coming and they let go and get rid of everything and they just wait for that day to come while they do nothing but sit together and wait. And Jesus says that is not how you are to think about your life on earth. You are to live your life of faith in Christ. You are to be strengthened in that walk so that you might be able to endure faithfully through what is to come because you don't know the day or the hour of my return. But you are left here for a reason and that is to glorify him and walk for him and serve him faithfully. And so he, he brings Judas's mind back to that and the disciples and he wants to again exhort them to pursue godliness and to make greater progress in their faith. And so he does this here if I, I'm going to break this down for you, he, he does this by putting, in, in three ways, he puts these things about how he's going to manifest himself to them uh, more deeply. They're going to know him better than they've ever known him. And, and the way he's going to do that first is he will manifest himself to them as they pursue godliness, he, as they live in love for him, Okay verses 23 to 24. So we're going to look at that. If you want to know Jesus more deeply, if you want to know God more intimately and deeply, Jesus says that you will know him better. He will manifest himself to you more deeply if you love him. Verse 23 to 24. Second, he'll manifest himself to them. Then he, he tells them about the spirit that he's going to give to them who's going to teach them, verse 25 to 26. And third, he's going to manifest himself to them uh, through the peace that he gives to them, verse 27 and 28, okay? Those are, those are our hooks, if you will. So if you check out during the first one or the second one, the third one at least, you could check back in, okay? <laughs> but you're all in, okay? Three, three points, okay? So let's Let's start with the, the first one there in verse uh, 23. Their, their affections for Christ, you might say, or their love for Christ, he is calling them to live that out in obedience to him. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So again, we've already covered that this, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is not about them earning uh, God's love by their good works. 
Jesus' point is that they can be assured that their love toward Christ will be pleasing to God, and they can expect, by their love for Christ and obedience, this outpouring of God's presence to the one who loves Jesus. It's not talking about this eternal love, which, was, which he loved us before the foundation of the world by which we're saved, He's not talking about the grace that he showed us in the initial salvation where he drew us to Jesus Christ. He's not talking about us being initially adopted into the family of God as if to say, if you love me and keep my word, you will will have these things. Those things are ours. Those things are the disciples already in Christ by their faith in Jesus, the Son of God. He is speaking of the love of the Father for those who have already sh- he has already showed grace to and adopted as sons and daughters and brought them into his family. So, in other words, this passage, he is speaking about your privilege, beloved, and my privilege as those who have placed our faith in Jesus. This is our privilege, and he's saying, this is how you will know me better. And he's saying that the one who loves Christ and keeps his word will know this fullness of love and this grace of God in him. Now, I want you to take note here that Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my words and will come to me. Look at the order. He's, it, it's not about our duty that's done from a cold heart that pleases the Father and brings the blessing of knowing him. It. It's about service and action that springs from a genuine affection and love for Christ that pleases him. Work and duty that spring from faith and love for Jesus is what pleases God. That is so important for us to understand because otherwise we begin to think of God and we begin to think of Jesus in the way that Adam and Eve in the garden thought of God and thought of Jesus. The reason Adam and Eve rebelled against God, part of the reason is that they failed to see that it was their their delight to obey and serve God. But but Satan twisted it and he made it seem like God was a lawgiver. That God was cold and heartless and Satan makes him think that all God wants to do is to have you do this duty for him, and he's withholding all of these blessings from you. He's withholding the blessings from you, and so God, this lawgiver, wants to keep that for you, but you know what? There it is, and you can have it, and you can be like him. You can know what you don't know and just eat the fruit. And so they started thinking of God in that way. And Jesus is turning it upside down the way it should be for us and for them. The way we should think about it is we should not think about our life and response to God in the form of this cold duty to a cold lawgiver who who we just need to appease by our obedience. But Jesus says, no, your delight, your love for God needs to come first. What is the first in the great commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. So our affections, our love for Christ must come first. Our love and desire and delight in Christ must come before duty. Now you may have guessed the reason I'm really passionate in thinking about this is because I went to the Puritan conference three days ago. And the Puritans, for all, they are sinners like we are, but one of the things that they emphasize a lot, which it all, often people look at the Puritans and they think about their law-keeping and their studiousness to the law and their holiness in that way. But when you really start to look at the Puritans, one of the things they emphasize a lot is the affections of the believer for God, the delight of the believer for God, the love of the believer for God. Because that's where the battle actually begins. 
it begins in, in, in our heart and how we view and love Jesus. It doesn't begin with our duty to Jesus. From that fountain of love for Christ, the, the, the duty and the service spring forth. And so, God doesn't want your duty of obedience out of a cold and stony heart. You understand that? Jesus doesn't want us to do things for him. It's not going to please him unless it comes from a heart that loves him, that delights in him, that sees him for, for who he is. Now, we know James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And we know that our love will be imperfect and we know, therefore, that our obedience is imperfect. This is clear from the scripture. And yet Jesus still says here, even knowing our imperfection, the imperfection of our love, the imperfection of our obedience, he says it's still, Calvin said, it still pleased God with the obedience of those who sincerely aimed at this end. So, so aim at it, beloved. Aim at Christ and love Christ and see him and serve him. Let's get the order correct. Sometimes you'll meet people who are professing Christians and they will they will tell you how they feel distant from God. And maybe you've been in that, maybe you've been in that in your own life. Where there's a season in your life where you you don't feel like you are close to God. You feel like your your prayer life is nothing. You feel like when you cry out to God, He doesn't hear you. You feel like you're almost like you're walking alone in this life. And it can become a very uh, a dark and a and a a cold walk. And often when you talk to a believer, or if you've been in that and you've come out of that, you realize that it's not, it, it usually can be traced to your own lack of love for Christ and therefore your own lack of obedience to Christ. Distance from God is not because God is not with his children. It's because we withdraw from them, from him, from God. We withdraw from the God who is there. And, and God, he never leaves us or forsakes us, but he, he permits us to withdraw. He, he lets you go back further so that you know what it is like to be with, without him. But then you find that when you come back to, to Christ and you see his beauty and you love him and you begin to keep his word and you begin to seek to honor him, then suddenly you start to feel this, this refreshing, this, this closeness with God that, that you know you had been missing. And that's the Father, that's Jesus manifesting himself to you, beloved. And so that needs to be our desire, Jesus says, as we walk. Through, through this life is to love him and to keep his word. And Jesus says, you will know me and manifest myself. I will manifest myself to you. Now, here's the thing. The world, all humanity in Adam, has decided and chosen rebellion against God. They have rejected God. They've rejected his love. They've rejected his light. They've rejected his life. They rejected the very revelation of God himself in Jesus Christ. And Jesus came once to redeem sinners from the world, but he will not and no longer be manifesting himself to the world. That would be like casting pearls before swine to manifest himself again to the world who rejected him and crucified him. 
The world does not love Christ. The world does not keep his word. The world does not aim at that end. Therefore, the world can expect no more manifestation of Jesus than he has already given them. They cannot know him in the way that the believer knows him as the loving Savior and the God that he is, but they can only know him as the righteous judge who will bring their sins to account in the final day, and they will have to give an answer for it. That is how the world knows God. They know him as this cold lawgiver and judge who will bring their sin to account. But Jesus did manifest himself, and he manifested his love, and he came into the world, but they rejected it. This is why Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in in that final day. And so those are the two camps, beloved. There's the camp of the world, which is seeing Jesus and rejecting Jesus. And then there is the camp of those who love Jesus and receive Jesus and keep his word. And and the question really is, which camp are you in, beloved? To the camp of the world, Jesus is dead and a distant memory. The camp of the world is a forsaken camp in the wilderness of sin. The camp of the world is parched and dry and tumbleweeds. It's empty and lifeless. It has nothing to offer. It has nothing to sustain you. It has nothing to please you. The camp of the world is dark and abandoned. Jesus says it is forsaken. He manifested his love to this forsaken world. He gave his son to die on a cross. And in this camp, this world rejects him. They withhold their own love for Christ. They may do duties, but they have no love. The other camp receives God's love in the gift of his son by faith and loves from God the heart. Which camp, beloved, are you in? And so Jesus exhorts his disciples to love him and to keep his word. And that leads to the second point. He will manifest himself to them through the spirit who will teach them. Verses 25 to 26 These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I know I don't have to remind you of this, but the disciples did not carry around cell phones in their pockets to record Jesus, to record his words. They had no film of Jesus and his teaching. And so there's a sense here in which they feared that even though this word, which Jesus was speaking to them, was God's word, part of their fear was how they would remember all that he said to them. They already had difficulty grasping his word, but how would they keep Jesus and his word with them. They're, they're worried that they would lose touch with Jesus and forget him, that they would forget his wisdom and his teaching and his comfort and his compassion, his love and his grace. And if he left them, they would, not, they would know him less, not more. He would become more distant, not closer. I'm going to get a little personal here, and I know some of you have had this experience, but 
and I didn't know my mom would be here and my, my brother, but you know, my dad has Alzheimer's, and you know this. I've shared it with you. You've prayed for him. And one of the things that, that you start to realize when someone has Alzheimer's, right, you start to realize that many years go by with this disease, and you begin to see your loved one for who they, you, you forget what they were like. And, and for those of you who have had loved ones that have died, there's a sense in which that memory, there's things you cherish, there's things you hold on to, there are things that, that are somewhat, somewhat vibrant, but, but they, they lose the, the vibrancy. And, and no matter, even if, you, even if I had recorded my dad's life all the way up until the disease began, even if I had just watched these recordings, you would still lose, you lose something about his, his character, his person, his nature, and, and you forget. We just forget. We're, we're sinners. We forget things. We're fallen. And so these disciples, as, as Jesus is, is going there, they're thinking, man, if he departs and leaves us, our memory and the vibrancy of Christ with us, it's going to, it's going to go away. And we're not going to know him as much as we used to know him. And so Jesus knows our fallenness. He knows our weakness. He knows their weakness and so he has not left us or them without a helper to teach them and to reveal not less, but more of Christ to them. They would actually know Christ by the Holy Spirit and through his word even more deeply than they ever knew him while he was with them. And I, I think that's something for us to to cling on to and, and an encouragement. Be of good courage. The Holy Spirit, who is the inward teacher, he is going to speak the same things that I spoke to you from the Father. He's going to speak them into your heart. He's going to come in my name at my request, and he's not going to give you new and fresh revelation, but he's going to teach you, Jesus says, all the things that I spoke to you and bring them to your remembrance, all that I have said to you. And he would help them grasp the significance of his teaching and all that it meant. He would give them a true interpretation of what Christ had said and done and who he is. This, beloved, is what we have in our hands. Because specifically, Jesus is talking to the apostles here and the first century disciples who would record and write down all that they had heard and seen and remembered. This is why we know the word of God is inspired and given to us by the Spirit. It is profitable for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. It is the very word of God given to us by the Spirit through the apostles who brought those truths to their hearts and to their memory so that they would accurately and rightly record for us who Jesus is and what he did and what he said Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12 to 13. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who was from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So this is what Jesus is saying. This is useful to us. It means that we have God's very word, the same word he gave to his disciples, and we can trust and obey, and we can know Christ more deeply through his word. If you want to know Christ and you want to draw, you want to be drawn closer to Christ, then you must be in his word. The more you're in his word, the more 
you seek to know him, the more deeply you will have that fellowship with him. And then it, it means this, though. If you're reading his word and you can't understand it, and it's difficult, we encourage you to do something. Ask the author to help you. Is the author ultimately John? Can't ask John. Can't ask John the Apostle to help you. You can't ask Paul to help you. You can't ask Peter. You can't ask James. You can't ask Matthew, Mark, Luke. You can't ask them to help you. Not only are they not here, but they didn't write it. God wrote it by the Holy Spirit. And so if you really want to understand and you can't quite understand what John wrote, what he meant by what he wrote, then go to the Holy Spirit and ask him to illumine your understanding. Now, this is not mystical. It's not saying pour your own meaning into it. I'm just saying if you are to understand God's word, it must be accompanied by the power of the Spirit to help us understand it. And this is what God, what Christ has given to us and the more we seek God and Christ in his word, the more deeply we will know him. It also is an exhortation to you, beloved, to pray for the Sunday sermon. Pray for the Sunday school. Pray for the teaching of God's word at the women's ministry. Pray for the teaching of God's word in the children's ministry. Pray for it because the only way that it's going to enact and change lives is if the Holy Spirit brings his power to bear through it, right? Finally, the final point this morning, Christ will manifest himself to those who love him. He will manifest himself through the spirit who will teach them. These are all encouragements for them. And thirdly, he will manifest himself through the peace that he gives to them. I love this. What a gift. Notice he gives them peace. And he doesn't just give any peace. He gives them my peace I give to you. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But before talking at that gift of peace to us, I know you guys thought I was probably going to go shorter today because I was at a conference for three days, but we're almost done check in one more point okay I think it's important here before looking at that piece that I need to say a few words about the end of this verse where Jesus says for the father is greater than I when I read that some of you may have been thinking whoa what does that mean what does Jesus mean when he says for the father is greater than I because a lot of false teachers, such as uh, the Arians and the Jehovah's Witness, if you talk to them, or even the Mormons, they're going to jump on that phrase, for the Father is greater than I, and they're going to try to argue that Jesus is saying here that he is less than God. They'll say, see, Jesus says, I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Clearly, Jesus is not God. That's in essence, the argument. And so in, in one sense, in doing so, they ignore all that Jesus said prior in this gospel about his unity, his oneness with God, his shared glory with God, with the Father. They ignore all of that. They, they ignore the rest of the scriptures that testify to it, to his oneness with God the Father, to the, to the triune nature of God. But even aside from all that, I think besides all that God says about Christ, even in this very gospel, when in the very opening chapter, which we looked at, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Uh, the, even in the very beginning of this gospel, Jesus is proclaimed as equal with God. So, so there are those arguments, but even aside from that, here's what you have to understand about this verse. Jesus is not making a comparison between the divinity of the Father and his own here. 
He's not, he's not making a contrast between even his own human nature and the divine essence of the Father. Though that is a way you could explain this, where Jesus is basically saying that the Father during Jesus' incarnation is greater in glory and more exalted because Jesus humbled himself and he came into the world and he took on humanity and he served and he suffered and he died. So in that sense, it could be true that Jesus is saying the Father is greater than I in the sense of Jesus is in his incarnation and the Father is in glory. So that's, that's possible. But I think... The, the, the key to actually understand this is the phrase, is, is to understand the phrase in light of the main clause which comes before it. And not to attach that clause, for the Father is greater than I too, because I'm going to the Father. So that's what they'll do. Because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And so they attach it to that phrase, but you actually want to attach that phrase, the for, the for the Father is greater than I, to the entire clause that comes before it, and this is the clause that comes before it. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So the for attaches to that whole clause, okay? For the Father is greater than I. In other words, here's what he's saying to them. The disciples wished to keep Jesus on earth and dwell with them. This is, this is what they were troubled about, right? They wanted to keep Jesus on earth to dwell with them, and they were only really thinking about their own gain or loss with Jesus. And we would have done the same thing. But his departure from them meant that Jesus is returning to heaven where he belongs to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. And Jesus is saying, if you have truly loved me, you would be glad, you would rejoice with me that I am going back to the Father. Why? Because it is better to be in glory with God the Father than here on earth, is it not? It is better in glory than this earth. And Jesus is saying, you should be rejoicing with me because I get to go back after I am crucified. I'm going back to my glory. I'm going back to heaven to be with the Father. Rejoice with me. But of course, they couldn't quite do it. And I can hardly blame them. I mean, would you want Jesus to leave your presence? No, but he's given you his spirit, and we know him more deeply now, and he's given us his word, he's given us his spirit, he draws near to us as we love him, and here then he gives them peace. Peace, he says, I leave to you, this is a general peace here in the very first verse, Peace I leave with you. This is shalom. He's saying, I leave, my, I leave you my farewell. But immediately follows up with that gift of peace that is far greater and more profound. And that's the peace, his peace that he gives to you. It's a peace that can only come, not as the world can't give it, it can only come from God. The world offers peace, but it is inconsistent, insincere, it's impotent, it can only be brought by a sword and even then temporary. The world cannot give you peace, but Jesus can give you peace. And he gives peace to them in two ways. And one of the ways, the primary way he gives us peace, beloved, is that we are at peace and reconciled with God. We have our sins forgiven, we are justified before God, we are brought into God's family and considered righteous in his sight, not based off of our own merits or works, but based off of his, and you no longer need to think of yourself as a condemned sinner, but now a child forgiven through the blood of Christ. Through faith, beloved, Romans 5, 
1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're at rest. You will not be condemned for your sin. You will not have to face God's wrath and judgment because of what Christ has done. I think this is what Jesus was saying when in Luke 24, verses 46 to 48, when Jesus comes to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and he explains to them, they didn't recognize him at first, but he explains to them that all the things written about me that I should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. Remember, he finds them and they're fearing and they're doubting. And what does he do when he says, peace to you, he says to them. And then you know what he does? He shows them his hands and he shows them his feet and he shows them his side because he's saying this peace now is yours. This peace belongs to you because of my broken body and my shed blood and my rising from the dead. You're at peace with God. That's one sense of peace and out of this peace with God. And I think while that is the primary peace that Jesus gives to us, and I pray you know that peace, the second sense, and this is probably the primary emphasis here, is he is reminding them that his peace now, the peace that Jesus knows, will sustain them no matter what the world does to them. That The peace that Jesus has in his own soul as he's going to the cross, does that make sense? Jesus is at rest. He's at peace when he is going to the cross. He, he's at peace because he knows the Father loves him and he loves the Father. And Jesus is saying, this peace that I have to go to the cross and to die and to be crucified, this is my peace and I give this peace to you. That peace that Jesus wants us to have so that we're not anxious and troubled and burdened. We're redeemed, but also he wants us to have this peace at rest in him, to know that this peace that Christ has should dissolve all of your fear of everything. Dissolves your fear away like when Jesus spoke on the boat in Mark 4, be at peace, beloved. Know Jesus' peace. He wants your hearts to be without fear and anxiety and trouble and sickness and death. He doesn't want you to fear or to be troubled any more than you want your own children to be fearful and anxious. He wants you to be able to say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Satan has no claim on Christ. Satan has no claim on us. Jesus says in the last verses there, he's leaving, but take courage, be at peace. I'm doing what the Father has commanded me to do. I do it willingly. I do it lovingly. I do it peacefully. I lay down my life. The world doesn't take it from me. I lay it down. And I want you to be at rest in me. And I want you to know my peace. Draw near by loving and obeying him. Draw near by being in his word, drawn near by reflecting on the peace that Christ gives us. And he will draw near to you, and you will know him. And when he says, rise, let us go, you'll follow him. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word and for the, for the beauty of it. I know, Father, that this was a, it's hard to say, but even longer message than I normally preach. And, and I just pray that you would bless these saints who have heard your word proclaimed and that you would encourage their hearts and remind them of what a great God and Savior uh, you are that you long to draw near to us. You, you don't want us to feel distant and feel apart from you, but um, Lord, we often do. We often don't delight in you and love you as we ought to, and sometimes we try to approach you by mere duty or service, but we, uh, we want to know you for who you are. We want to see Christ more clearly. We want to know your presence among us more deeply. We we want to love you, the Lord our God, with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And we know, Lord, that we cannot do that on our own. And so we thank you for the grace that you have given to sustain us through that. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who teaches us. We thank you, O oh God, for the peace that you have gifted to us. The peace to know that by faith in Christ we are forgiven and the peace that we can have to know that as we walk through this world of trials and tribulations, that you are forever with us. Help us to know these truths. Help us to reflect on them throughout the week and help us to worship you faithfully until you return. We pray all these things and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take our hymnals and turn to number 403. 403. Blessed assurance. And if you're able, please stand with me as we sing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending, welcome above. Echoes of mercy, whispers of love. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above. Filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Amen. I leave you with the benediction from Hebrews that is almost a perfect parallel to the passage we are looking at today. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great sh shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us 
that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And let's sing the doxology. Praise God from whom.